Please be seated. And I invite you to Acts 10, 10th chapter of Acts. Acts 10. Back in the dark ages when I was a boy, it was common for young boys to build tree forts together. And if a tree fort was elaborate enough to have a door of any sort, you could just about count on it bearing some bold-lettered, hand-painted, we-mean-business sign that said something along these lines. Girls, keep out. As social creatures, we soon learn that human relationships involve many interlocking layers of restrictive boundaries. Just think of the large boundaries. Language. Nationality. Ethnicity. Gender. Wealth. Age education, social standing, and a near infinite number of other boundaries that give shape to our lives. The necessity of some of these boundaries is obvious and may be illustrated real simply by a football game. The fans that attend the game are restricted to the stands. And someone there in those crowded environs with all those crazy people around may say, you know, there's a lot of grass out there. I think I'm going to find a spot on the field. doesn't work that way, does it? These boundaries give shape and allow the game to be played out. We also recognize boundaries that are wholly evil, such as those erected in the interest of racial hatred. Yet registering somewhere on the scale between necessary and unnecessary, planned and unplanned, beautiful and evil, most restrictive social boundaries come laced with both troubling and redemptive components. I suppose there's something inherently unloving in the sign, girls keep out. But when you see such a sign hanging on a tree fort built by some boys, you say there's some good things going on there too. There's some boys growing up that realize they're not girls. And there are some boys that are growing up that are holding girls at arm's length for now. And that's not bad. As we think on these social boundaries, we find them early in the text of Scripture. Genesis 3. God's salvation plan utilized certain restrictive boundaries, as you will remember. While God's redemptive plan was free of all evil in its design, it had its problematic features nonetheless. Let's think of that design and take it for quite a distance here. But first we have Adam's sin in the garden. God distinguishes their two peoples. There will be people like Seth who belong to God and follow Him. There will be people like Cain, who remain in fundamental rebellion against God. Two distinct classes of people. Because of sin, God must make these two circles. As God's plan unfolds, He chooses in His wisdom to elect Abram as the head of a family through whom God would work out His redemptive purposes. From this point forward, everything was channeled through the narrow channel, the narrow pass of Abraham. God entered covenant with his single family, a covenant calibrated to ethnicity, symbolized by the exclusionary and in Gentile minds repulsive rite of circumcision. Then God formed Israel into a nation. Having delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, God said to Moses, You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You, Israel, the people of Jacob, among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19. As we move to Exodus 20, in the next chapter, God gives His law to Israel, and the boundaries continue to be erected. Circumcision as a sign of the covenant is a significant boundary. But then there are food laws restricting certain meats and mixed foods. There are holy days mandated with layer upon layer of intricate ritual. And then there's the whole tabernacle system. Gentiles completely restricted. Israel surrounding that tabernacle. And then the Levites on an inner circle. And then the Aaronic priests. Then the high priest, going one time per year into the Holy of Holies where God resides. These restrictive boundaries working their way inward to where the light of the glory of God shines just like a thin candle. And as Israel enters the promised land, one author says, well, the borders of Israel were the borders of God's kingdom. In one sense, the boundaries of Jacob's family were the boundaries of God's people. The only way that you could really come into the presence of God was to become a Jew. Why does God do that? God has chosen to display His glory and to work out His saving purposes through this narrow channel of Israel. Within that nation's life, God erects boundary after boundary after boundary to show something that had to be demonstrated. He is saying by these circles and walls, I am a holy God. And you approach God on His terms, not yours. For over 2,000 years, God's redemptive plan was hedged about by this series of highly restrictive boundaries. And it is as if God was positioned at the epicenter of this series of walls with one thin light saying, Here is where I meet with man on earth. This is part of his wisdom. The problem in all of this, and there's nothing wrong with the design, God knows that this is necessary, but the problem in it is that the Gentiles were on the outside looking in, and Israel contributed to the status quo, rejoicing to add more and more boundaries for the Gentiles. This was particularly true in Jesus' day and in the day of the writing of the book of Acts. This was not God's design to turn away from the Gentiles. But it's really not confusing as to why Israel moved in that direction, is it? Now, if we look to the Old Testament faithfully, the Old Testament foretold a day when Messiah would inherit the nations, becoming their light. To His temple, the nations would stream, and upon them He would pour out His Spirit. We read in Psalm 67 earlier today, The nations will rejoice in God, their Savior. This is there in the Old Testament. But Israel shied away from such references and was, in some degree, probably just overwhelmed by all of the discussion of restrictions. 
There's far more about how to deal with skin diseases and what foods not to eat in the Old Testament than there is about the Gentiles responding to the light of God. It's really no confusion in some ways why they shied away from these Gentile references. In fact, God himself had stipulated for over 2,000 years that we would come to salvation through the people of Abraham. And God had situated himself behind these multiple walls of restriction. The notion that his saving purposes would ever reach out to the Gentiles was a concept that went right over the heads of God's people. You say, now, Jesus said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The apostles certainly understood that. You know, in light of Acts 10, it is very likely that what the apostles heard there was go into all the world and find Jews and lead them to Christ. Because everything they knew, Matthew 1.21, was that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. These boundaries were erected by God. They weren't going to mess with these boundaries. Jesus himself had said, I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To his followers, Jesus, Israel's Messiah, was firmly ensconced behind the multiple boundaries of God's saving plan. You could hear about Jesus when you got near the Holy of Holies. We weren't going to bring you Jesus on the outside of the boundaries. So what they emphasize, what Peter himself is emphasizing at this place in his life, is Gentiles are to keep out. That may not be mean-spirited, but they're to keep out of the tree fort of God's people. That's the way it is, unless they want to become a Jew. Now this background brings us to Acts 10, and I think it's essential to establish it in some sense for today's sermon as well as, God willing, for next week's sermon, to remember these boundaries and how God himself had set them up. As we come to the end of chapter 9, we have Peter healing Aeneas at Lydda and resuscitating Tabitha and Joppa, validating Peter as a man who possesses God's authority. These miracles mark Peter out. They say, watch this man and take heed to what he does. He has God's power and God's direction. We come then to chapter 10 at verse 1, and we read of Cornelius' vision at Caesarea, a vision to a Gentile. Verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. As you can see on the map here, we're about 30 miles north of Joppa. Caesarea is the seat of the Roman government in Judea. Try to just get a quick sense of the city. Herod the Great here built a magnificent harbor. His luxurious palace stood on a promontory into the sea. Here was a renowned temple to Rome and Augustus Caesar, after whom the city is named, as well as a prized and stately aqueduct that brought fresh water into the city and was guarded by a garrison of soldiers at all times. It was so important. Putting this together, this is a Gentile city. This is where Herod the Great resides. This is where he rules. He comes to Jerusalem sometimes, stays in the palace there when there are festivals in it, but this, this is Gentile zone in Palestine. It's a prominent city. And Cornelius is a prominent man. 
Rome didn't ultimately thrive on its generals, though there were some who were very great, but really the Roman army rode on the back of these centurions. They were men who had charge of just 100 men, but they were very carefully selected, Rome believing that they were kind of at the center of it all. They weren't dealing with as much as the generals, but they were very important, more important than the common soldier. In fact, they were paid five times as much as the common soldier and were selected not because they were great soldiers as such, but because they were responsible people with great wisdom. And they were looking for men not who would go on attack first, but men who would stand their ground to the death. And that takes a certain kind of person. That's who Cornelius is. He's an important and wealthy man. As we see in verse 2, he's a God-fearer, probably a formal God-fearer. That is, he adopted the monotheistic faith. He has left paganism, probably attended the synagogue there in Caesarea, but he was not circumcised and was thus outside the covenant community. Such people would be referred to as a proselyte of the gate. Hear the word? Gate. The barrier is there. The barrier for Cornelius was undoubtedly circumcision because it was seen as a repulsive, stigmatizing mutilization of the body in the estimation of Gentiles. Probably the parallel would be cutting your ears off today. It would be disgusting to all of us. Why would you ever do such a thing as that, to show yourself to be part of a certain people? So there were many who feared God, who knew there was one God and sought Him in the Word but wanted nothing to do with the whole deal. And so they were not part of the covenant people. The Jewish authorities spoke of Gentiles as scum and as dogs. The text makes clear here that that's not who this man is. God is making things fairly easy for Peter, as easy as they can be made. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, that is, it's around noon, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of God Come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror, as we would suspect. And he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, like a sacrificial offering. And now, verse 5, Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. So around three in the afternoon, this is no nightmare. Cornelius receives a vision, an unmistakable vision, fills him with terror. God is initiating a plan with this Gentile, and Cornelius cooperates. Verse 7, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Judging from the distance to Joppa and the time of travel estimated for that time, these men probably left immediately that afternoon, spent the night, and then arrived in Joppa the next day. That leads then to the next section, which is Peter's vision. So we have Cornelius receiving this vision, following through. Now we move back to Joppa and Peter. The next day... As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So it's around noon. He goes up on the flat rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house in order to pray. 
And here, verse 10, he becomes hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. A trance, that is, Peter was either wholly or partially He had lost consciousness. He felt like he was outside of himself. And as with Saul's conversion in Acts 9, we have a parallel here, don't we? An outsider receives a vision about an insider who will bring a message to the outsider. Then the insider receives a vision to speak to the outsider. Same thing in both places. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus and Ananias. Here, Cornelius and Peter. Verse 13, now there comes a voice to Peter in this vision, rise, Peter, kill and eat. This great sheet that descends from heaven is bearing undoubtedly all kinds of clean and unclean animals. It is very difficult for us to conceive what this command meant to Peter. But he would have thought certainly of Leviticus chapter 11. And he says in verse 14, By no means, Lord, echoing Ezekiel, who was asked to do something unclean in Ezekiel 4. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Knowing of Ezekiel's response and knowing that God, in a sense, lets him out of it, and he finds another way than to do what is unclean, Peter, I'm sure, is thinking, I am to stand my ground here. And do what is right. Leviticus 11, what does it say? Clean land animals had to chew the cud and have a split hoof. So you can eat beef, but you cannot eat horse. You cannot eat swine, for instance. Sea creatures had to have fins and scales if you're going to eat them. Winged insects had to have jointed legs and to hop. Birds of prey, reptiles, and other crawlers were off limits. I guess we would leave off the... Insects with the jointed legs that hop, too, wouldn't we? But, but there were some things you could eat and some things that you couldn't eat. Why? Because, as I've had a Jew tell me, it's real obvious. God knows the best tasting meat is pork. And so he says, no pork. He, the guy was serious. Is that why? What does the text say? In Leviticus 11 and verse 45, it says, because of this, I am holy and I want you to be holy. Now, I don't think that God is saying here there's something inherently unholy about pork or ham. But what he is saying is that I want to establish guidelines that show that you are a distinctive people the people of a distinctive God. Be holy because I am holy. Now this voice comes to Peter and says, eat this unclean meat. And Peter says, no, I'm holy. I have never defiled myself against the Word of God in such a way, and I won't do it. He wants to remain holy. But a voice comes, verse 15, and really troubles him because it comes a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. 
Peter does not fully understand, but it's clear to him that God is the lawgiver and he's suspending the dietary boundaries of the law. While those laws promoted holiness, they did so as illustration. Mark got this in his gospel sometime after Jesus had ascended, but in 719 he says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now that's a commentary, I think, on that passage, but there Jesus is saying it's not what you take in at the mouth and leaves the body that makes you unclean. It's what is in the heart. This was always the point of the dietary laws. All Peter knows is I'm not to eat these things in order to be holy, but God's the lawgiver. He can rewrite the law. Clearly, there was nothing about these meats that was inherently evil. God was simply illustrating a point. The illustration was over, and now it was time to see the truth behind it. This happened, verse 16, three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This sheet or whatever it was, lowering these animals, is taken to heaven three times. Why three times? Repetition indicates prophetic certainty. Remember the multiple dreams of Pharaoh, and what did Joseph say? Why? Because this thing is certain. And so it is here. Peter, you haven't missed it. And Peter might be saying, well, I was really hungry. That was a weird dream, and I don't want to think about that again. Three times this happens. It's not a dream that you just dismiss. This is the work of God. Now, verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, that is, God is teaching him, he knows this, it's something profound, he's not precisely sure what it is at this point, but his mind is laboring to grasp the message. Verse 17, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Apparently that's how they knocked on the door these days. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. What a phrase. Verse 20 says that he is to receive them without hesitation, which might be read making no distinction. The idea is virtually the same, but Peter is not to worry about interacting with these Gentiles. God is no longer calling them common or unclean. By Jewish custom, it would have been scandalous for Peter to bring these men into the house and to commune with them. But he does. Something is radically changing. In the next scene, then, we have vision of Cornelius, vision of Peter, receiving these visitors. We come then to Peter and Cornelius in their meeting together. So, verse 23, The next day, 
Peter rose and went away with them, that is with these three that had come from Cornelius, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. We learn later six of them. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And we know Cornelius is a monotheist, but apparently he believes Peter is some sort of supernatural messenger. This is an amazing scene as he falls down here. We are in Caesarea. You know why Caesarea is not in Joppa? One reason. Herod the Great would have made the great harbor there in Joppa, but the people of Joppa didn't like Herod the Great. So he went up north to Caesarea and said, forget you guys. Joppa's this sort of backwater place that Caesarea once was. Now Caesarea is the seat of power in Palestine. And here you have an official, a wealthy, significant official of the ruling power and kingdom in Palestine bowing down at the feet of a fisherman who's been spending time in a tanner's house. This is amazing. Peter is not overwhelmed by this by any means. Verse 26, he lifts him up and says, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. There's Peter blinking. He sees all these people gathered there. He's got a big crowd here. He doesn't know what he's going to find. And here's this crowd of people. And he addresses this crowd with something that falls short of what you might call a powerful opening line. He says to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And we can see the wheels turning for Peter. It's not in accordance with Jewish tradition for me to be here. The Jewish authorities continued to erect walls, and they would have said that Peter meeting with these Gentiles would have become ritually unclean. Peter's not, here is he, exactly working overtime to earn Cross-Cultural Evangelist of the Year award, is he? I'm not really comfortable being here. I'm, I'm really outside of what the law of the Jewish authorities would say, but God sent me, what do you want to know? Now Peter has figured this much out. The vision he received a couple of days ago indicated these men were not unclean in God's eyes. As Stott puts it, Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. What do you want to know? Verse 30. Cornelius said four days ago, here we go again. Why again? really kind of the third mention of it, it's to say, you got to get this. God initiated this with the Gentiles. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This thing has been set by God. For Peter now 
to speak to this Gentile about Christ would be in his mind something like a Jew bringing a Gentile into the temple. This man's uncircumcised. He's not part of the covenant people. He's not entered through the walls. But he knows God has sent him here to speak. Now, what is Peter going to say? Have you ever had one of those phone conversations where you both think that you're returning the other person's call? You're both kind of hanging there just waiting for the other person to say why they've called and they're waiting there for you to say the same thing? I think Peter's kind of in that mode here. I'm supposed to say what? Remember what he said? I've come here to answer your questions. And Cornelius says, tell us what you have to tell us. Remember verse 22. We looked at this there. Uh, Cornelius, this God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. I've got nothing to say. In one sense, is what Peter's saying. So he opens his mouth and says, verse 34. We enter now at verse 34 upon his speech. That is a strange phrase to English ears. He opened his mouth and said, what else are you going to do when you speak but open your mouth? We have to understand this phrase is saying what is now to follow is extremely important truth. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount opened his mouth and said, listen to this speech. This is vital. Peter opens his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Now I may be reading a bit into this, but I'm, as a preacher, I'm seeing a preacher standing here trying to come up with an introduction. What I do know right about here is that there's no partiality with God and I am able to come to you and speak to you. Here's the key though, apart from you passing through the narrow channel of Israel. That's profound. The wheels are turning. Peter is getting it. In Christ, the kingdom of God is encompassing Gentiles directly. And at this point, Peter then launches into the only message that God has ever given to him in this respect. And he begins to preach the gospel directly to this Gentile. This is the only message he knows. And he begins to proclaim it. Verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You'd have to be living under a rock not to have heard about Jesus. You know about him. You've had discussions about this. But we are telling you, and I am proclaiming, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, on a tree, that is, he was cursed of God. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Nobody was included in this that might think Jesus was just an apparition. We ate and drank with him. If he wasn't a ghost... 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. He's alive, and he'll judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Now we could look at this sermon for weeks, picking apart various phrases, but let's just look at the emphasis here. The historical earthly ministry of Jesus attesting to his divine approval. The historical Jesus was utterly important. Verse 39, Jesus' death as one cursed by God. 40 and 41, Jesus' resurrection attested by his eating and drinking. Verse 42, the living Christ will judge the living and the dead. You will face Jesus. All of us will. Verse 43, prophetic witness. The Old Testament scriptures were always pointing to Christ. All of these walls, all of these restrictions, all of these boundaries, all of the prophets, all pointing to Jesus. And in his name, forgiveness of sins. Verse 43. So Cornelius is not a so called noble savage who was to be left alone in his blissful ignorance. As charactered as he was, Cornelius needed the forgiveness of Jesus' sacrificial death. Now, he's in a time warp here, living on both sides of the cross. But nonetheless, the message of Christ, crucified and risen, is shared with him. And while Peter is speaking, we note the response. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. To the message of forgiveness in Christ for all who believe, the hearts of Peter's hearers surge with joy. The Spirit falls upon the believers in Acts 2. The Spirit falls upon the believers in Acts 8. The Spirit falls upon these believers in Acts 10. They're Gentiles. They've not passed through the barriers God erected in conjunction with Israel. They passed directly into the circle of God's people as Gentiles through simple faith in the gospel. God has torn down the barriers that he himself erected. Verse 45 The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles therein. And they didn't come through Israel. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, as in Acts 2, as with them. Jesus has poured out His Spirit. These Gentiles have been saved from the wrath of God by faith in the Gospel. Verse 46, Peter then declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. As Alexander puts it, Why should the sign be withheld from those who were possessed of the thing signified? Peter sees these uncircumcised Gentiles as full-fledged members of the body. That's confirmed by that next phrase. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Due to the restrictions imposed by the Jewish authorities, it may have been a stretch for Peter to spend time in Simon the Tanner's house. In fact, it rendered him unclean. But lodging with Gentiles was nothing short of epic. What fellowship they must have had. What joy of spirit. For over 2,000 years, 
God's saving glory has been wisely channeled, sheltered behind concentric walls of Israel's restrictive boundaries. It was a wise and a beautiful plan in its own right. It taught holiness in a way that was utterly essential. It taught that sinners had to approach God on God's terms. But God's plan had its challenges. A major challenge was the access of the Gentiles. God always intended to bless them through Israel, but in the way everything was structured, it was a little light that seemed to shine on the Gentiles. And then you have the Jews stepping in. Israel so concerned about maintaining the boundaries that even less light is shining out to the Gentiles. So if you can picture this in my weird mind, if this isn't a vision, it'll probably sound like one, but I see it as as these concentric circles of restriction and boundary working their way in on a field, and then it dips down into the middle, and down at the bottom is a single candle, the glory of God. His glory is there. You will approach this glory on His terms. There's a piece of it on earth here. But then, in Christ, this great fireball drops from the sky and detonates right at this epicenter and explodes in light, shining over all the walls to all the world. That light has reached now the Gentiles directly through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not passed through Israel and all of her boundaries. It is now come in faith and trust Jesus Christ crucified and risen. All the Gentiles now may rejoice in the light of the gospel of Christ. As Psalm 67 says, to be glad in this. The curtain is torn asunder. Access is granted to us. Let the streams of countless hosts come to the light of Jesus Christ. We are in as Gentiles, not out. Peter, writing to those believers scattered, said, You are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And we must ask the question, in light of the wonder of this work of God, are you in? Are you in? Have you received the forgiveness of your sins by responding in faith to Jesus dying to pay the penalty of sin and rising in conquest over death? Have you, like Cornelius, responded to this phrase, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through Jesus' name. Have you come to that place in your life where you have believed in what Christ has done? For those of us who have responded, how can we do anything but rejoice today? We have sung songs as Gentiles. We'll sing again throughout this day. But we have come as those who have been included by the mercy of God. He didn't need to do it this way. But He did. 
And so we should rejoice with the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. We're not simply involved in missions as a church so that we can feel good about ourselves, so we can help some people out there that are having problems, so we can boast how many missionaries or how much money we spend in missions. We're involved in missions because we rejoice to know that the light of the gospel is for everyone. It's for every nation. It's for every subgroup of people. So we want to see the gospel proclaimed to all nations because this is why Christ came. And there's that confidence too, isn't there? Look around you at any subculture, at any subgroup, even those that seem so separated from Christ. We have no fear to take the gospel there. All authority has been given by Christ The gospel will not be withstood even by the gates of hell. We can take the gospel of Jesus Christ authoritatively to anyone, anywhere, in the name of Christ. And that gospel will conquer. Many, many times it takes even death for the seeds to be sown and watered well. But we can take the gospel anywhere. And in all of this, we must pause to see the glory of God And say with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. To say to the depths of our soul, I'm in. By the grace of Jesus alone, I'm in. Let's pause for prayer. How rich we are, Father, and we pause to give you thanks. Praying that you will teach, direct, Guide us for your glory and for your honor. I pray for anyone who is separated from Christ today, upon whom the light has not dawned. I ask that you would reveal the truth of Jesus, his saving mercies through his death and resurrection, and that you would bring such a soul to light and salvation today. For those of us who are Gentiles, may we now sing with a song of deep love and adoration to you for what you have done in your amazing grace. Amen.